This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. This past week, President Biden signed the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which, after a hard-fought game of brinkmanship, granted Congress permission to raise the debt limit in exchange for caps on discretionary spending growth. While both major party leaders claimed policy victory, many Republican and Democrat firebrands declared the agreement a failure, labeling it either a capitulation to their opponents or a completely worthless exercise. American onlookers could be forgiven for not understanding all the contours of the $6.3 trillion their federal government will spend this year, but deserve to know what the passage of this law will mean for both future spending and our growing shared debt. Beyond political spin, who were the winners and losers in the agreement, and what does the final product presage for future policy debate? My guest today is the Kilts Family Chair in Fiscal Studies at Cato Institute, Chris Edwards. Mr. Edwards has been a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee, has testified frequently to Congress, and is a top expert on federal and state tax and budget issues. He has analyzed and written extensively about the policy issues addressed in the Fiscal Responsibility Act, and will share with us his views on the substantial features of the newly passed law and what this contentious compromise can tell us about the direction of our deeply but evenly divided Congress. When I return, I'll be joined by Cato Institute's Fiscal Studies Chair, Chris Edwards. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now pleased to welcome back to Hubwonk for his second visit, the Chair of Fiscal Studies at Cato Institute, Chris Edwards. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Chris. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. All right, well, it's good to have you. We're going to talk about the details of the newly passed Fiscal Responsibility Act. We've we've uh, staved off default, at least for a while. Uh, but before we dive into the details, I, I wanted to find some terms for our listeners who've been hearing about the possibility of default. Um, but I want to use terms that uh, sort of everybody understands. So um, we're all familiar in our own lives. Uh, we have income, we have uh, bills to pay, we maybe accrue some debt. Um, uh, the government uses similar terms to describe uh, how it essentially takes in money, pays out money, and accumulates debt and deficits. Explain to our listeners what those terms are the equivalent in the government. Well, well, strictly speaking, uh, when a government defaults on its debt, it doesn't pay a scheduled principal or interest payment. And so that was the, the threat here, that the federal government, uh, which has reached its $31 trillion statutory or legal borrowing limit, was running up against it seemingly in the next few days. And um, the scare was they, they wouldn't be able to pay an interest or uh, a principal payment. Uh, however, that the word default is being used also in a looser way to say that if the government is short of money to pay any of its bills, then that's a default. And I don't agree with that looser definition. And the reality is if we had come uh, right up and over the limit, the government could have simply stopped payments for things like uh, subsidies to state and local governments. 
uh, federal government employee wages and those sorts of things. It could have prioritized its spending, spent uh, and then you know cut off the things that weren't crucial like employee pay, but then continued to service its its uh, its bonds, its thirty one trillion in debt. So the so-called X date wasn't as uh, as uh, perilous as as some had made it out to. Again, of course, the government's always taking in revenue. Um, but I, I think what you're saying is uh, they wouldn't have been able to write the checks to everyone on time had we gone past that quote unquote X date. But uh, for benefit of our listeners, when we're talking about these kinds of uh, brinksmanship, um, uh, the the money that's going out is already committed, meaning it's already spent. It's just a question of can we borrow the money to sort of ultimately pay those debts, right? We're not, at least with regard to default, we're not negotiating whether to spend money at that point. What, what we're using this as sort of a, a, um, a leverage tool to uh, to get our concessions for one side or the other. Is that right? No, no, that's right. I mean, the, the government, uh, you know, has has accumulated debt of 31 trillion now. It's adding more than a trillion every single year. Over the next decade, um, the Congressional Budget Office expects us to add 20 trillion more in debt. So debt will basically jump from 30 to 50 trillion just in the next 10 years, unless we reform the budget and cut spending. So, you know, it's getting constantly worse all the time. Uh, the federal government has never had any legal uh, requirement to balance its budget, unlike the state governments. So it's really kind of uh, a free-for-all out of control in Washington. The only sort of limit uh, or leverage point for spending reformers is this uh, is this statutory debt limit that comes up every few years uh, that Republicans, House Republicans this year said, hey, we're going to use this uh, running up against this uh, debt limit to kind of leverage some spending reforms. So that's what they tried to do. Okay, so again, as you say, it's a leverage point. Uh, we're going to paint in broad strokes that Republicans or fiscal conservatives generally want to spend less or borrow less, at least, uh, whereas Democrats or progressives uh, generally, you know, want to spend more. Um, what were the policy objectives now going into this? I guess it was we're characterizing as Biden versus McCarthy, who um, uh, Speaker of the House, but we want to sort of in broad strokes. What were the objectives of, if we can define those as the two sides, what were each side trying to achieve in, in this brinksmanship? Well, a little background is that, you know, the last time the federal government balances budget was back in 2001, and government uh, deficits have grown, essentially grown larger and larger every year for the last 20 years. Then COVID hit, and under President Trump, uh, spending massively ballooned, and then Biden continued that massive spending. We've added six or so trillion dollars just in the last few years to federal government debt. Republicans took uh, control of the uh, House of Representatives uh, uh, this year, and so they said, you know, finally they said, hey, enough is enough. It's obvious that these giant uh, these giant deficits have uh, pushed up inflation, which has you know hurt every working American over the last uh, year or two. So they said enough is enough. We're going to try to limit some limit spending here. They use this this upcoming debt limit to try to get leverage. Uh, they passed a bill in the House that would have had about four trillion dollars in spending cuts over the next decade uh, a couple months ago. And then um, in negotiations with President Biden, they they reduced that amount of, of uh, deficit reduction from four trillion to around one and a half trillion dollars. So in theory, this deal will save one and a half trillion dollars 
over the next decade. That sounds like a lot, but um, you know, with no reforms, we like I said, we would have we are expected to add 20 trillion in deficits to the debt over the next decade. So re the Republican plan, uh, this deal will reduce the 20 by about a, a, a trillion and a half to, you know, like 18 and a half trillion. So things are getting worse just a little bit more slowly. So that, well, that's exactly right. We'll take solace in that. Um, now, in my analysis of, of uh, and I do enjoy uh, going on the, it's hard to believe, the Congressional Budget Office um, website. They have all kinds of interesting graphics. And it points out uh, very uh, clearly to me that we spent about $6 trillion, I'm using rough numbers. Uh, we take in about $5 trillion and, again, add about a trillion dollars a year to this deficit, um, give or take. Most of that is in what's called non-discretionary. I don't want to take our, our, our eyes off the ball of this particular deal, but none of the non-discretionary uh, was touched. And these are the big items. These are 70 percent or depending on how you uh, uh, look at it, 60 to 70 percent of our budget is in this in the area of entitlements uh, like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Uh, of course, service on the debt is we can't do anything about that. Um, why have we focused on, you know, we're going to get into those, but relatively small savings, relatively small ball when when these massive and growing entitlement programs seem to be uh, uh, beyond the reach of, of legislators? Uh, because, you know, politicians, both parties are, are worried about advocating reforms to Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and food stamps because they they think that their opponents will will demagogue them, uh, you know, will criticize them as, uh, you know, pulling uh, food from the mouths of uh, the hungry and that sort of thing. Uh, that's unfortunate. As you say, the, the vast majority of federal spending now is in these giant entitlement programs, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, food stamps. Um, those programs need to re be reformed if we're ever going to get uh, this, the, def the debt and deficit problem under control. The current Biden Republican budget deal only looks at this minority small share of federal spending called discretionary spending that Congress appropriates every year. Look, I, I think the agreement is a small start, but it is just a start. And one of the, you know, one of the things to remember is, is that this this deal would just put some sort of budget caps on the overall amount of discretionary spending, which is fine. But really, to really reform the federal budget, we need to start identifying programs that we can actually cut and eliminate. And you know, this is what I focus on at the Cato Institute and our website, downsizinggovernment.org. You know, we argue that programs like food stamps, the federal government ought to get completely out of. There's no reason for the federal government to be involved in food subsidies. If state governments want to run their own food plants for low-income households, they can do it. There's no reason to fund them from Washington. And that's true with K-12 education. It's true of housing programs. So, I, you know, I think both parties are ultimately going to have to start looking at particular programs to a cut and eliminate. And again, if the state governments want to step in and fund those programs, that's fine. I think that would be more fiscally responsible because state governments are required to balance their budgets. So if a state, you know, wants to fund, say, a housing or a food program, you know, they got to raise the taxes to do it. They're, they won't be getting uh, worse in debt. The problem with dumping all these programs uh, up to the federal level is that the federal government does this massive borrowing and then there's no responsibility. So we need to start talking about cutting particular programs.
So all this, um, I guess, tempest in a teapot is about the 30% that is discretionary. You mentioned there's an overall, in this agreement, an overall cap on the growth rate. Now, now it's not going down. Uh, it's going up more slowly. I think it's uh, roughly 1%. Is, is that right? And and is that you mentioned 10 years. Is, is, that, is that real? Are we going to you know, slow down, actually slow down discretionary spending to 1% a year for the next 10 years? Is, is that the, the deal? So the, the deal actually only puts spending caps on for two years, 20, 2024 and 2025. There's some supposed restraint after that, but it's kind of not real. That's smoke and mirrors. So the the non-defense spending will be is, is supposedly held flat in 2024. Then we'll be allowed to grow 1% in 2025. If, they, if Congress actually holds to that, it it actually provide a real reduction in spending because of course we've got inflation running at four or five percent now. And then on the defense side, they they're allowing a three percent uh, increase. So if Congress you know holds to these limits, then real spending will fall a little bit. Um, there are various ways that uh, there is some cheating here in in what Congress agreed to. So for example. Um, the the deal would uh, rescind some of the $80 billion increase in IRS funding that the Democrats passed last year. It would it would rescind $20 billion of it. But, that, but the deal allows um, Congress to use that uh, $20 billion rescinded from the IRS to expand other programs. <laughs> so, and there's also some mysterious $20 billion Department of Commerce fund that uh, budget skeptics here in, in D.C. think is actually kind of a secret hiding place for $20 billion that they're going to pull out and add to discretionary spending in the next couple of years as well. So, um, you know, I I don't think the, 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 the importance of this deal is not really so much the economics of it. It only makes a teeny tiny dent in our giant debt problem. I think the importance is politics that we we started this year with the Biden administration absolutely adamant it wasn't going to do any spending reforms. It wanted a clean debt increase with no um, spending reductions at all. And to the House Republicans' credit, they pushed them into a corner and they have forced some you know very modest reforms. So I would give the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy you know a lot of credit uh, for that. They stuck to their guns and they forced the Biden administration um, to backpedal. And I think that's because you know the Biden administration polling wise is actually getting very unpopular. Most Democrats don't even want a President Biden to you know run for the White House again in 2024. So I think the White House you know came into this from a real uh, a point of uh, political weakness. House Republicans took advantage of that and they extracted um, some bargains. So I think the political importance is we got a, we got a little bit of forward momentum towards spending reforms. And I hope the House Republicans keep pressing, you know, down the road for further reforms. So, so as small, we stipulate now that these are relatively small compared to the problem. But let's let's sort of go through each one of them. I'm, I'm going to, in broad strokes, talk about um, some of the money that was set aside for COVID uh, relief. Uh, that's been clawed back, right? Because some of it wasn't spent. Uh, there's a pot of money allocated uh, where, you know, for, for when needed. Thankfully, uh, we hope the COVID uh, pandemic is behind us. Has some of that been taken back? Is that part of the deal? Yeah, there was supposedly $30 billion left of unspent COVID money, and the plan uh, rescinded that. 
Um, but it won't be the, the CBO didn't really find that that actually creates $30 billion of, of savings. So there was some savings, but maybe not as much as the $30 billion that they promised. We've talked about um, student debt relief, uh, you know, on this podcast, and it's uh, it's uh, pernicious effects on the entire education community. But um, did did uh, Biden? Uh, I think some of it's still in uh, legal battles, the uh, debt forgiveness, but the postponement of the repayment of of student debt has has continued. Is that right? That, that's right. The deal will not uh, support the Republicans on this. And students will have to begin repaying their their debt. So that was a win for uh, Republicans as well. The, the the Biden folks were not able to put their student debt relief in in this bill. Um, uh, a lot has been made as far as if if anyone's going to call this a Republican victory about the need or the requirement to work for welfare benefits. Uh, that's also uh, you know I, I remember back the welfare reform of the '90s. There were a lot of gnashing of teeth about requiring people to work in order to receive benefits. But in, in hindsight, it was actually help a, a great benefit to getting a lot of people out of poverty. Working for uh, welfare actually uh, has many, many salutary effects on 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 the poor. Um, with that lesson learned, how did it go? Did we actually impose more work requirements for uh, welfare reform? Right. To build on what you, you pointed out, the, the uh, well-known 1996 welfare reform was a big success. Uh, work requirements were put in for all kinds of welfare programs, including food stamps, which are under current uh, discussion and you know poverty levels plunged in the late 1990s. More people got off the couch and went into the workforce, so that was great. Unfortunately, administrations over the last 20 years have taken a number of steps to uh, undo those work requirements. So Republicans, they wanted to reassert the importance of these work requirements, and so for food stamps, which is a giant 140 billion dollar program, they raised the age uh, point from 49 to 54. Um, so if, if so, if you are now in your early 50s, uh, you can't get food stamps uh, endlessly or continuously anymore. You'll be cut off after three months unless you're out uh, there uh, in the workforce. The, the savings from that were not large uh, at all, but it's really it was more of the principle of the thing that, you know, we want to move these welfare programs back toward work requirements. Yeah, and I share your view that it ultimately, while it might seem heartless, it actually helps, you know, data supports the fact that it actually helps the poor. But I don't want to dwell on that. Uh, I believe it was you just two weeks ago or one week ago, you testified in front of Congress about the IRS and that $80 billion they got in the Inflation Reduction Act, the fact that uh, nearly all of it was dedicated to uh, audits and enforcement, uh, and that that, that was counter uh, um, counterproductive. You testified to that effect. What has been this battle about the IRS getting, has, has, have the Republicans been able to claw that money back or maybe redirect it to more useful uh, measures? Last year in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, the uh, the Democrats uh, included $79 billion increase for the IRS over the coming decade. That's an enormous amount of money. It would have quadrupled IRS spending on enforcement from around $5 billion a year to $20 billion. Uh, 10 years from now. It was an enormous increase in enforcement. So I testified a couple of weeks ago to the Senate Finance Committee, well, you know, all the disadvantages and negatives uh, of increasing uh, enforcement. People, it's not as simple as saying, oh, you know, rich people are cheating and we need to get them to pay more. And a couple of, you know, in, you know points to consider are that 
the so-called tax gap, the amount that Americans are cheating, is actually down over the last couple of decades compared to the size of our economy. So that's one point. Another point is that, you know, Americans actually are pretty honest with their taxes. We, The international studies that have been done show that Americans actually cheat on their taxes less than the Europeans. Our tax gap is smaller than the European uh, tax gap. So we are pretty honest with, with our taxes. A further point is that the IRS makes a lot of errors. So if they, the more they increase their their auditing rate and their enforcement, the more collateral damage there's going to be from the tax system. The tax system is enormously complex. Uh, the IRS goes in, they audit businesses, and then they audit individuals, high income, middle income individuals, small businesses. They make a lot of mistakes, which creates a, lo a lot of collateral damage. A lot of people who have paid the correct amount already have to end up uh, hiring lawyers and defending themselves against the IRS. Uh, with a complex tax system, enforcement becomes very um, costly and problematic. And just to, to give you one statistic on that, so disputes that end up in front of a tax court, which is a special court that deals with federal tax disputes, the IRS loses actually more than half the time. So, you know, the IRS targets people and businesses to go after who they think is cheating and, you know, individuals appeal. And then if they, uh, they're not satisfied with, you know, the appeal in front of the IRS, they can bring it to tax court where the IRS ends up losing more than half the time. So that, that is an indicator of the, of the great deal of mistakes the IRS is making. So the bottom line from this is, you know, yes, we need to reduce tax cheating and lower the tax gap and improve overall compliance with the system. The way to do that is to simplify the tax code and to, um, and to fund, you know, uh, better computer systems at the IRS, you know, better um, taxpayer service at the IRS to help people pay the correct amount to, to, to get IRS to make fewer mistakes. Um, and just to chase after, you know, the real targets who really are cheating. So that's a better way to improve compliance with a tax code, not just sort of heavy handed, you know, uh, vast increases in audit rates. And for our listeners who are sort of in the eat the rich camp, I'll just say you uh, produced an interesting graphic in one of your papers uh, describing the fact that tax compliance or the tax gap uh, amongst wealth groups uh, the wealthier you are, the smaller the gap is, meaning you have sophisticated accountants and attorneys, but you make sure you dot your I's and cross your T's. You don't make, you don't cheat on your taxes as you get wealthier. It's actually the, the poorer taxpayers who are, who have huge gaps between what they own and what they pay. Uh, so you're really, uh, with more, uh, punishing audits, you're really going to inevitably punish middle-class and, uh, lower income people, uh, in those kind of systems, uh, which I think challenges the narrative of 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 uh, many progressives that wealthy people and corporations don't pay taxes i would uh, just you know uh, opine or or editorialize here uh corporations don't pay taxes anyway you pay taxes right. you know uh, these are you know imaginary uh, construction ultimately that all all corporate taxes get passed on to corporate consumers which is you so uh you know this thrilling uh contribution to the IRS is very counterproductive. You also mentioned that the IRS loses half the time when they challenge a, a return. Uh, both sides lose in that case because you don't get the money back for the audit. Those of us in the audience who have been audited know uh, surviving an audit is punishment enough. It's uh, sort of a soul crushing. Uh, uh, not not good for anyone. Uh, it's certainly not the economy. So I, I bang on enough about the IRS thing, but I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you were able to communicate that to Congress. 
So we, we talked about all these details about this new um, you know, relatively small victory for Republicans. Why are, it, it, you know, if I turned on the news and uh, saw Republican pundits, a lot of them are really, you know, upset that they think this was either a, a meaningless or, or a, a defeat. What accounts for uh, Republican displeasure with what seems to be generally a Republican victory? Well, I mean, Republicans, House Republican conservatives didn't get everything they want. Um, but uh, so, for example, the original uh, bill that passed the Republican House would have rescinded all $300 billion of uh, President Biden's new energy tax credits. Uh, I would like to repeal all those uh, uh, energy tax credits myself, but it, it just seems to me exceedingly unlikely that a Democratic Senate and Democratic White House would you know, turn around and repeal all those uh, energy tax credits for climate change that they just enacted last year. So, you know, the final bill does not include those, the, the, you know, rescinding those tax credits. I think Republicans are going to have to wait until they control House, Senate and White House in order to repeal those energy tax credits. So, um, I, you know, so they're angry they didn't get everything they want. I, I actually, I haven't heard any of them. Uh, I, I mean, I, you know, I respect where they're coming from, but I haven't heard any of them argue that there was a path here for greater savings in this bill that President Biden would sign and that a Democrat-controlled Senate would pass. I think this was the most that House Republicans could have got in a deal. I mean, there's no tax hikes in it, which is kind of remarkable, given that all we've seen from the Democrats the last few years is tax hike after tax hike. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's the best they could have got. And I, I think, again, that it that it'll be up to the House Republicans now to keep the pressure on. They 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 won one here against the a Democratic White House and President Biden. And I th think they should keep pressing their advantage. I mean, for example, later this year, um, the uh, Congress is going to be considering Farm Bill reauthorization. The Farm Bill comes up every five years. It reauthorizes all the massive farm subsidies and the, and the massive food stamp program. Republicans should push hard to, you know, to make reforms in those programs. If those House conservatives, you know, really, you know, uh, mean what they say about fiscal responsibility, they should take the lead in proposing major reforms to farm subsidies uh, and the food stamp program. So uh, I hope they press the, the, you know, their advantage now in spending reforms. Indeed, I was looking up uh, food stamp programs uh, to find out when food stamp program was half the size it is now. You have to go all the way back to 2019. It's doubled in the last yes. Four years, four years, it's doubled. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm on my soapbox here. Uh, the Democrats also seem to be somewhat uh, disappointed by the outcome. Is it simply a case of any any uh, case for uh, redu reduction in spending is is, is outrageous and um, you know uh, um, more is more, uh, or are there specific uh, uh, gripes they have with this particular bill? No, I think that's that's basically it. Um, I was actually pretty surprised that you know how many. I mean, the, the bill passed the House with you know wide margin with you know large numbers of Democrat and Republican votes. Um, I think it's actually kind of remarkable that that many uh, you know Democrats voted for a bill that doesn't hike taxes and reduces spending modestly, um, which is amazing given how far left you know in my view both the. The House and Senate Democratic Caucus has uh, has has moved over recent years. So um, I 
you know, I, I guess they're they're part of it. I guess is that um, you know both sort of the the far left and then uh, the strong conservatives in the House are kind of setting up the next debate about you know spending that that will come down the road. They, you know, they want to say, hey, this deal didn't go far enough for us, so we're still a threat. You know, watch out for us in the future. I think that's part of it. But again, the um, the 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 strong middle held, and uh, it may you know the extremes on both sides were uh, somewhat unhappy. Do you think that though the Democrats um, feel a sort of a, a, a groundswell of, of frustration by voters that all this spending, despite their assurances, it, it would not affect inflation, has affected inflation? So we see massive amounts, you know, trillions of dollars going out the door, and now eggs cost six dollars a dozen. Um, do you do you think that may have softened their uh, position a bit? Possibly, but it's also possible that they think that you know they can simply they'll agree to this thing, but then they'll try to reverse it out you know later this year, or next year, or in the next couple of years. I mean, the the record of spending caps holding over the long run is not good. You know, your listeners may remember there was a big back in two thousand eleven. There was a big Budget Control Act agreement between President Obama and uh, Republicans led by uh, Paul Ryan. Uh, it put multi-year spending caps on the discretionary part of the budget. Uh, unfortunately, in subsequent the original agreement was pretty good, but in subsequent years, you know, both Republicans and Democrats came back and lifted those spending caps. They basically cheated on their own deal. So it could well be that Democrats. And the Biden White House agreed to this, knowing that, hey, we're going to come back next year and try to bust these caps and spend more than we promised uh, anyway. So that, you know, we can expect that. That said, I still think there was an important political precedent here because we've spent the last, well, like you said, since 2019, we've been ballooning budgets under both President Trump and President Biden. And hopefully we've reached an apex now and we're on the way down the hill where we're 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 not increasing taxes and we're and we're trying to restrain you know spending and and trying to reduce you know moving the deficit downwards uh so you and i sh perhaps share a, a, a similar view that uh <laughs> less government might be better government um we want the government to do what it does and do it well um if you were king for a day again we're, we're getting close to the end of our time together uh we've already stipulated that most of the discretionary budget is is small relative to non-discretionary. If you were king for a day or um, speaker of a very large minor majority in the House and the Senate, um, what would you tackle to really meaningfully affect the, the debt and the deficit? I think the single most powerful way to reduce the federal budget that the general public, both parties understand, is reviving federalism. The idea that, you know, the, the federal government has got itself involved in hundreds and hundreds of areas like K-12 education and local housing and local community development and local transit systems where it really shouldn't be involved, that state and local governments can handle themselves. I mean, the states, for example, have been flush with cash the last few years. State governments have done very well. They balanced their budget. Most of them have had surpluses. So why isn't the federal government pushing back some of these spending activities back um, to the state level? I mean, the states have shown they can balance their budgets. They can handle a lot of these responsibilities. So I think that you know getting the federal government out of an area like K-12 would be a uh, a really a powerful and important 
um, uh, you know, reform idea for, say, the next Republican nominee for president to take up. We've we've seen the problems with the public schools. We've seen this movement toward reforms in the public schools across many states, you know, stemming, you know, uh, in, in the wake of the pandemic. I think K-12 is ripe to get the federal government uh, out of it. And uh, so reviving federalism, I think, is kind of a central theme that I think, you know, say the next reforming president should really grab a hold of and move on. And I, th I think that would get bipartisan uh, agreement, right? Because effectively, you're saying we're not just a state, uh, a country divided into 50 cantons or something. We, we're 50 different states with not just have different laws and different priorities, but need different laws and different priorities. You know, California is different than Alabama, different than Wyoming. I, I think it's it's you know, the um, contentiousness at the federal level seems to me uh, uh, really a, a direct result of somehow coming up with one law or one position that will satisfy 330 very, very different Americans. I, I have to believe if, if you carve money, but also the laws and how it's allocated uh, into 50 different unique uh, pies, you've got a heck of a lot less argument about who happens to be sitting in the White House. That's right. I, I think one reason why the, the political battles in this country have got so vicious and nasty with these big divides in recent years is because we piled so many responsibilities and spending activities uh, uh, at the to the at the federal level. We don't need to. I mean, I think it's OK if the states go their own way with their school systems, housing programs, food stamp programs and the like. And just to give you one very specific example of that, the food stamp program, as you mentioned, is 100 and $20 billion program, 25% of the money spent in food stamps goes to junk food. You People who get food stamps can buy anything in grocery stores, essentially. So a lot of states have, have come to the federal government and said, hey, we'd like to uh, reform our own food stamp program to, to so the people can't buy junk food like cola and potato chips. The federal government has said, no, you must allow people to buy the junk food. And to a lot of states, both Democrat and Republican, that doesn't make any sense. But the federal government has prevented the states from doing the, that reform. So for that reason, I think it makes more sense to run programs like food stamps at the state level and to get the federal government out of it. Right. I mean, Massachusetts doesn't want to be governed by Texas, and Texas certainly doesn't want to be governed by Massachusetts. Let, let's us all decide where we want to live and how we want to run our state. I, I think that's magic and maybe the best point we've made uh, in, in our, our uh, conversation today. So we're at the end of our time. I really appreciate you coming on the show again, Chris, uh, and sharing your, your wisdom and knowledge of, of the budget. And uh, I think this is you know a bit of good news, and, and you've, um, you've helped our listeners understand it a little better. Thank you. Great. Thanks a lot, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would help make it easier for others to find us if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubble.